What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you might know that I interviewed Keela Rose Calloway for episode four back in 2020. She'd been a feature on the Black Expat website and had previously shared her experiences going from a future lawyer to a stand-up comedian in Vietnam. Yes, that's a stretch I know. So if you haven't heard that episode or read our article, I encourage you to do so. After the interview, though, she mentioned another fellow comedian who was living in Saigon, who she thought would be a great fit for the show. Naturally, as you can imagine, I was intrigued because quite honestly, beyond her, I didn't know any stand-up comedians, much less another person living in Vietnam. And this is how I was introduced to J.K. Hobson. J.K., who was born in Puerto Rico and raised in New York, was a longtime Los Angeles resident before moving to Southeast Asia. In addition to creating comedic content under the banner of Asia Out Loud, he was also the host of the Outsiders podcast and the co-host of We Out Here Expat podcast. And while all of this is certainly interesting, I'm going to go ahead and say that this episode is full of random musical trivia, unexpected turns, and a ridiculous amount of laughter. Well, at least more than normal. Because JK has had one of the craziest career pivots I've ever seen. And I'm a professional counselor and career strategist. I mean, we're talking going from a death metal guitarist to a Fulbright scholar to a comedian. Crazy, right? In this episode, JK shares his reflective thoughts on identity, colorism, and acceptance. He also walks us through his love affair with metal and punk and the ways music dominated his life for a good long while. And he also shares how his comedy translates in an incredibly diverse context. So how does a metalhead process after their band breaks up following a successful tour? Well, that's what you get to find out soon. And as a quick note, the language might be a little spicy for some listeners. And if you have kids around, you might want to put on some earbuds. Welcome to the Global Chatter. All 
right. So we're back with another episode of the Global Chatter. And I am excited. That word gets overused every time I introduce someone. But I am excited because I already know the conversation is going to be fire. Also, I say that about every episode. I feel so special already. (laughs) You should feel incredibly special. Um, if If you listen to the intro, you know that I've got J.K. Hobson with me, who I was actually introduced to his work about two years ago. And so I am excited that he is on the show today because obviously it's taken me two years to get it together. So JK, welcome to the Global Chat. Thank you. And thank you for that warm welcome. You were introduced to my work. I was like, damn, I have work. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I've never heard it it put that way before. (laughs) You You know what? It's really funny when someone does your intro because sometimes you're like, this is the stuff they'll be reading at my funeral. And then she did this. And then she did that. And she was also known for it. So it's really right. weird. I feel you. I feel you. Be looking down from the ether. It's like, well, I did all this shit. Okay. I, right. That was exactly. Cool. <laughs> no, but it's true because, no, I'm, no, to be very honest, I feel like when you are doing a lot of things, you don't know the impact of what you're doing. And then when someone else recognizes it, that's kind of the moment that you go, I'm just not like in this wheel of life doing things like I'm actually doing recognizable things. So wow. I, I want to give you your props. Wow. Thank you so much. That feels good. I'm, I'm going to accept that. I will accept those props. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In 2022, that's what we do. We accept and celebrate. Mm. So I, I like to, to ask people just from the beginning, because obviously it's a global chatter and only in one case have I been in the same space as someone I'm interviewing. So where in the world are you currently located? I am currently in the Bintan district of Saigon, which most of the world knows as Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, the name was changed in 1975 from the original name Saigon, but everybody down here calls it Saigon, so I call it Saigon, and that's in, in Vietnam. And I, because it's at the time of recording, cold here, although... It's February. It's going to be 72 today. <laughs> I like to know, what's the weather? What's it like? Is it warm? Is it cold? Is it hot? Rainy? It was hot today. It was really hot. <laughs> um, I, like, and I wore... Like, when you say hot, like how hot? It was like in the... I want to say it was in the high 80s. They do Celsius down here, which I still haven't wrapped my brain around. <laughs> so I never really know exactly what it, what it is, right. you know? But it was in the yeah. high 80s. And, it, and it's humid as well. And I was in the shade. I wore all black today by accident, which is like, you know, that's a whole other thing. And uh, and I was sitting in the shade, sipping on a coconut. And I was still like, yo, it's mad hot today. I was sweating. Yeah. So it was, it was a burner. <laughs> and it's February. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's dry season now. There's two seasons in Vietnam. There's wet season and dry season. I much prefer dry season because I don't like driving on a motorbike in the rain, but it gets hot. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think for anyone who's lived kind of in the Southern part of the world, those tend to be the most common seasons, right? It's either people are like, either it's hot and it's dry or it's hot and humid <laughs> and it's wet. Right. right. So we call, cause in Cameroon, we have like dry and rainy season. I, mm. it seems like it's the same thing you have down in Vietnam. Yeah. So let's, Let's kind of start from the beginning. You know, I always like to set the scene and give the context of people's lives. So where were you born and raised? Where did you grow up? So I was born in Puerto Rico. I was born in Puerto Rico in the early 70s. And then we moved to New York City, to Brooklyn, 
when I was just two weeks short of being two years old. So I have like a fuzzy memory of Puerto Rico before we went, but I grew up in New York. I grew up in New York City. I lived in uh, Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And then when I was about five, we moved to Flushing, Queens. And then I moved back to Crown Heights, lived in Harlem for a while, Sunnyside, Queens, Spider-Man's Neighborhood. I lived in the West Village, back to Brooklyn, mostly Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. So I'm curious, though, having been born in Puerto Rico, did you go back as a child? Did you ever have an opportunity to go back and forth as a child? Or were you pretty much settled in New York once your family got there? No, yeah, we used to go back a lot. So my mother's Puerto Rican. My dad's from New York. Um, he's Jamaican from New York. His My grandparents on his side are from Jamaica. They immigrated in the 30s. But we would go back like every couple of years. You know, we would go. And then... Like when I became an adult, I would go back infrequently, like maybe three years or some every three years or something. And then since I left New York, I've gone back like I, I left in 2000. I moved to L.A. in 2000. And then I would go back every few years. I've been back once since I moved to Vietnam and I plan to go back again in the summertime. Co- all the things with COVID, you know. Right. Well, I mean, COVID just, I don't want to talk about COVID. Oh, we don't have to talk about COVID. We don't have to talk about it. Oh my God. And the impact on travel. But here, okay. So here's where I'm fascinated because obviously growing up in New York, there are strong immigrant communities. There are strong Caribbean identities. There's strong Puerto Rican community. When you were going back to Puerto Rico, I assumed that you were hanging out with family and cousins and and all of that sense. Mm-hmm. What was sort of that dynamic? Because I'm I'm always interested when folks are like immigrant, like, and I say I'm using immigrant loosely, right? But when they have kind of these cross cultural stories, what is it like to go back to the old country or you know the family space and compared to being in the states or where you were living? Well, I would say like my Spanish is not is not amazing. So that's a, that's the whole thing. So there's always like, I'm very nice in Spanish because when you don't speak a, speak a language really well, like all you could be yeah. is kind of is nice, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that's my that's my personality in Spanish is is a, is nice. But the family dynamic, I think uh, when I was a kid, I mean, it was just like, oh, you know, everybody's like, you know. Well, here's this nice kid. Then when I got older, it became like, especially when I was doing the band, it was like, oh, he, oh, he's, you know, just this, this interesting person and let's hear his stories and stuff like that, you know? But uh, it's interesting because we were talking about a little bit about this before the break is I wasn't like particularly close with my grandmother, who's, who's mm-hmm. my, my, my mother's mother and she's dead now. So I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but there's always this, you know, when I see all the, like I just saw uh, um, Encanto the other day, you uh-huh. know, the, which is, which is set in Colombia. And, you know, when I think of stuff like Coco and all, and, you know, just every, every single stereotype of just like grandma used to do, or, you know, or, you know, grandma's <laughs> just like this. And it wasn't, we weren't, we weren't close you know, and we we didn't, and yeah. and I think it it had to do with, you know, I think it had to do with colorism, because mm. I'm her first grandson. My father's black. My mother does not really p- present as black. She's you know she's something, 
but she's light skinned. But mm-hmm. we never, but there was, I never felt that acceptance, you know, from mm. my grandmother. And I never put my finger on why it was until like very late in life. Like I was in my 30s when I was back, I was at her, at her house. My mother was taking care of her when she, when she got really old, my grandmother, you know. Even though my mother and her didn't even get along either, but it was just like oh, I got to take care of this person. It's like that filial piety, you know. And right. but I remember being in her house and looking around, you know, and looking at all the pictures and seeing all the pictures of my younger cousins, like my younger light skinned cousins, you know. And then I was mm. like, there are no pictures of me in this house, like <laughs> that my mother oh, no. didn't put there. You know what I'm saying? Like my grandmother right. had pictures of my cousins. There were no pictures of me. And I was like, huh, wow, okay, wow. you know, I mean, I didn't even get yeah. mad at first. I was just like, wow. And then I thought yeah. about it later on, and I got mad. Uh, and that was a whole situation. <laughs> That's a whole story. That's a whole podcast of, of like, <laughs> me sort of coming to terms with and sort of making mm-hmm. peace with, with my grandmother and just realizing that I had to love her as much as I could while she was here. And then her yeah. eventually actually responding to that. That's a whole story. Wow. But, uh, but, but all that is to say, so, you know, I, I, I think I felt a little bit like alien and never really figured out why, you know, I love going to Puerto Rico. You know, I love hanging out there. I love hanging out with my mom. You know, I love my family down there, but I, I, I think that, uh, that it, it, that probably kept me from establishing a deeper connection than I did. And I'm curious, and and this may be a no, but on your father's side with them having Jamaican roots, did you ever go to Jamaica? Yeah, yeah. I went to Jamaica uh, a few times, a uh, couple of times in my childhood and then in my adulthood. I haven't gotten back there like nearly enough. I still talk to my cousins. It's funny because my cousins in Jamaica, we're really close in that kind of way. Like if we don't see each other and then we see each other, like we pick up where we left off, yeah. you know? So yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. I'm probably closer to them than a lot of my family that I see more often, it, it, which I don't know. I don't <laughs> know how that could be. I think we're just, we're just closer vibe wise, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been to, been to Jamaica and, and I love it there. Yeah. Because I think you, you had a really, and it's, it's hard to say observation because this is the life that you lived, but it's interesting to sort of see the dichotomy between one side of the family and and recognizing that colorism, which, you know, you and I were talking off offline is something that unfortunately it's a feature in a lot of societies. So this is not picking on a region. <laughs> um, legacy of colonialism, legacy of what we understand as white supremacy, legacy of all these things in the aftermath and you know, pitting tribes against each other, but that is another podcast. Um, that's a whole but it's, podcast. <laughs> that's a whole, like, <laughs> my thoughts on that. Right. Although I think I work my thoughts on that in every episode, okay. Okay. whether it's called for or not. Mm. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I think it's interesting sort of seeing that from that lens and then seeing kind of the dynamic and the relationship with your Jamaican family. And I, and I wonder if, not that, and I assume that there is also colorism in Jamaican societies, because why wouldn't be? But it seems like it wasn't as much of an issue, at least with the family members you got close to on that side. Is that a fair assessment? Well, we're all black. 
Right. You know what that's what I mean. So I mean. it's like, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. That's a, that's a, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a good meeting point. I, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, I, yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, I look, I think the, the funny thing about colorism though, is that not to belabor this point, but you could legitimately have people who are all black, mm. right? You could, mm. but depending on where you fall on that chart, <laughs> yeah. right? That's right. Right. Yeah. Not only do how outsiders may treat a group of black and or brown people, but also how black and brown people treat each other based on the fact that you darker or lighter and and like this is supposed to matter. I mean, to me, it'll never be, it'll always be one of the weirdest things that humans do is just be like, oh, you happen to look Sienna as opposed to like, you know, burnt brown. <laughs> therefore, right, right. therefore, you get different teeth. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it's like, it's like white people. No, no, hold on for the racism. We got this. We could do this ourselves. Right, we can be, right. We could be fucked up on our own. You know, we don't need <laughs> right. We do everything. <laughs> we don't need we don't need assistance. We can do this. Right. And I and I and I've and I've seen it and been in black and brown countries where I'm just like, this is so ridiculous. And I recognize that in some spaces. The mm. only reason I haven't gotten much of it is because of the passport I held. I mm. do recognize that because mm. there's privilege there. But so if we take your story back to New York, so what did you decide to do? So you're you're going to school, you're growing up, you're doing your thing, you hit your teenage years, and then what what's your plan? Going to college, going somewhere else, doing something different? You're shaking your head. I did not have a plan. <laughs> I had no plan. And I think because I had no plan, I started to kind of check out with school. You know, I didn't I went into high school wanting to draw comic books. Because I loved comics, okay. loved like all that Marvel stuff that's happening now. That was like I was growing up in what they call the golden age of comics, when you had like comics like the X Men tackling issues like yeah. race in this very clever yeah. way. Um, and I was just like I was in that world, and uh, I ended up going to the High School of Art and Design, which is in uh, it's in uh, East Side of Manhattan. Uh, a few blocks from the Forbidden Planet, which is a famous comic book shop. I was in there like every single day. Me and my friends were, you know, that was like our world. So I went in for that. And then while, and it was a very racially diverse school where it was like, we had everybody in there, you know? I mean, everybody's from yeah. New York. Everybody's New Yorkers. But like, yeah. if you see my pictures and, and I didn't really even think that much of it, you know, in high hmm. school. And then when I go back and look at the pictures, it's like, wow. Or when I show people pictures of my friends and I in high school, they're like, wow, that's and Y'all were all hanging out like that. It's like, yeah, you know, I mean, later on, uh, you know, when I think the political climate started getting more divisive, I think a lot of the white folks I knew showed their asses a bit like when trump got you know i feel like then it like it, things got kind of weird but at the time when we were kids i mean to to my you know the way that i felt about it you know it seemed like very eclectic and and i liked that about it but then because of that i became exposed to a lot of things that you know that i didn't really know about before which is like for like mm. music for example like i went to high school with this kid evangelos and i was always like the sound of guitars you know, like yeah. when Run DMC came out and, you know, and they started putting like hard guitars on their 
on their songs. It was always like, ooh, you know, or LL Cool J had, you know, had some songs yeah. with, you know, and I was like, mm, you know, I like the sound of that, you know. And then, but when I got into high school, I, somehow I was talking to to this kid about that. And he was like, oh, you should listen to that. And he would make me mixtapes of different metal bands, you know. And I'd be like, I used oh, to make this many, is kinda... many, many a mixtape I have made. Yeah. <laughs> many in high school. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lost art. Now you can yeah. share playlists, but I'm like, no, 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 no. It's love to yes. actually spend time recording a song from either a record or a CD mm-hmm. or the radio, mm-hmm. however you can do it. Yeah. But yeah, wow. It's a real labor of love, you know? So this kid was just constantly like, oh, it, like basically catering it to what my tastes were. And basically, it just went heavier and heavier until, like, we got to Metallica. And that's when Metallica was, mm-hmm. like, in the early, yeah. mid to late 80s. That's when 80s, they were at yeah. their, like, you know, they were making, that was the pinnacle of their, you know, of their creativity. And then I was just like, once I got to Metallica, I was like, okay, so this is my shit now. You know, and I really, and then I, then I was, like, going on my own and going to shows. And I didn't really know a lot of people into metal, you know. Yeah. And, you know, my black friends would make fun of me. You know, they were still my right. friends. I wasn't one of, a lot of, you know, a lot of black metalheads would be like, you know, well, well, my black friends turned their backs on me. So now, I'll, you know, so I still, <laughs> I still have black friends. They just made fun of me for listening to metal. And I was like, that, you know, that's fine. Because I, and I really stood my ground. Because I was like, no, this music is fucking dope. Yeah. So, but that's when, yeah, I, that became like, and then when I was 15, I, my mother bought me a guitar for Christmas. Mm. And I started teaching myself how to play guitar. And then that was just my thing. You know, I went to school, but I was super checked out, graduated late, you know, went to college, (laughs) didn't care about it, just wanted to play music. That was like the one thing that I was sure about. I always like to ask, especially when I get to music, I'm very curious. So 15, 16, 17, maybe even 18 year old you, what bands were speaking to you at that time? Uh, Metallica. There was like the whole Bay Area thrash thing. Then I started getting into to, uh, like punk and, and hardcore. Mm-hmm. So like the Misfits and, and Leeway and the Cro-Mags. Let me see. 18. I guess Fugazi. Voivod. Um, who else did I like? Quicksand was around that. So a lot of, so it went from like metal but then metal mm-hmm. is like so there's so much like like dungeons and dragonsness to like a lot of the stuff. <laughs> right. Which was never my like, you know, and I played Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid, but I was like, nah, this is like <laughs> I like music about real shit. You know what I mean? Which is I like right, that about a right. lot of the thrash bands, you know? Cause they were influenced right. by punk. And it wasn't that like, right. you know, it wasn't that operatic, you know. So then I started getting more into hardcore, you know, or like bands that were a mix between metal because hardcore was like it was like music from the street you know people right. talking about their actual lived reality not this fantastical right. stuff so that really appealed right. to me but i did like the musicality of metal so that's how it mm. became like more crossover like leeway i mentioned corrosion of conformity uh who started yeah. in the punk scene they became kind of kind of more metal later on great band the voivod who was like more they were a little bit fantastical, but they talked about science fiction. So it was like they right. used science fiction as like the backdrop for like creating a lot of metaphors about uh, mm. about present day life. And um, yeah, so so it was basically like metal, but but from the street about reality. That's what I was into. 
at what point did you make the transition in terms of getting into a band? Were you in a band while you were in college or where did you go from? Yeah, I was in like three or four bands (laughs) when I was in college. Uh, So it took a lot of my time and my attention. It's probably why I got kicked out. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I just, I just, I mean, I just stopped. I stopped. I just checked out. I stopped going to class and I just was practicing and playing shows with bands. You know, I started playing shows in the city with my band. So I was, uh, I joined, I was in a bunch of bands, but then I joined this one band and uh, we're doing original music. And it was, I was really finding my own voice as a musician. And what we were doing was something nobody, we were doing like, psychedelic hardcore metal if that makes sense okay. it was really like <laughs> yeah like when the, when i heard tool later on i was like that was like the closest thing yeah. like this is kind of like what we're trying to do like tribal but we also had electronics in there yeah. it was really original and and i sang and played guitar for that band and so for the first time i started as a singer i started thinking a lot mm. about a lot of things that I hadn't considered before, you know, like I grew up non-religious, you know, and, and that experience trying to figure out what I was about, I became like intensely aware and, and even spiritual, even though I didn't have a, a spiritual practice. I made up my own religion. I created my own religion mm-hmm. and, and then I went crazy. But Within that, though, is I found my own voice, you know, musically. And then I just kept playing. Then I ended up playing drums in a band and a couple of bands. You know, I decided that I wanted to learn every instrument because I wanted to be able to, Mm -hmm. like, if I wrote a song, I wanted to be able to, hey, play this like this. I wanted to know how to do everything. So I taught myself guitar, bass, and drums. I even recorded demos where where I played all the instruments. But then after I kind of came down off the spiritual trip, you know, I, I had like alienated myself and a lot of people. And I was just kind of like trying to find, and I got really depressed a couple of times. And I sort of like, you know, was really kind of lost in New York for, for like a couple of years in my 20s. Um, and then I started to kind of like pull myself together. And then I joined Crisis, which was a band that started in 93. And I was a fan of the band. For years, I would go see Crisis. And Crisis is one of the only bands that I ever saw. And wasn't just like, I like this band. It was like, I should be in this band. Like, I literally thought that while I was watching (laughs) them. Like, I would be a really good addition to this band. I even met them a couple of times. I never like, you know, I never proposed that. But, you know, I met them. And and then years later, I had started an all-black hardcore band. And it had uh, my buddy Mike singing. From No Redeeming Social Value, Dre Lockdown from Warzone and No Redeeming Social Value. These are shout outs. This guy, Walter. And uh, and it was good and it was fun. Then Mike left and I was singing and playing guitar. But it was really difficult for me to lead the band. You know, like, because I, I was super serious about it and music. And people were at different phases in their lives and, you know, varying yeah. degrees of intensity and dedication. So Mike, who had left, was like, oh, you should just join an already established band. Stop trying to start a band. You should just join a band that's already. And I was like, oh, like, just fucking walk into a band, right? You know, I was like sarcastic about it. He was like, yeah, yeah, you can do it. And then two weeks later, I saw an ad in the Village Voice, 
that said uh, band with influences including Black Sabbath, The Melvins, and Acid Bath seeks second guitar player. And I was like, well, that's right up my alley. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I like, I like those bands. So then I called up, and when I called up, the answering machine, because I'm sure you remember those, said, leave all messages for crisis. <laughs> and I hung up the phone. I was like, what the fuck? It's crisis. You know, because again, it was this weird, you know, it was like one of my favorite local bands, you know. So anyway, so I called them up and long story short, I ended up joining the band like within a few weeks. And then within a, a month or two, we were touring the the East Coast uh, mostly. And then uh, that was in 98. And then uh, we moved to L.A. in 2000 to get a record deal. The band had three albums out already and then got out of the the, mm -hmm. the record deal. And then we're looking for another one. So I joined in between record deals. And then it took us it took us a couple of years to secure the right one. And then we came out with the, the band's fourth and final album so far in 2004. <laughs> I mean, nostalgia is a big thing. You could probably get the band back. Yeah, I, I, I thought it's possible. Uh, the band, the band broke up for like personal reasons, which is like <laughs> they had nothing to do with me or very little. So it's like it, they would have to. It could, it could happen. It could, it could happen. But it's not up to me. There was, there, there was, there was, right. a, there was a relationship that dissolved within that within that band mm. like a like a like a, a an intense romantic mm. relationship that 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 dissolved and as a result the band broke up so you can't you know it's difficult to be like hey just you know <laughs> i mean fleetwood mac made it they work. did <laughs> and there were They're, two there were two and one of them wrote a I whole know, song about someone else that while was wrong. They were that was raw <laughs> I'm sorry. Rumors. Yeah. I speaking of, not to yeah. take it back to the '70s, but Rumors is one of my yeah. favorite albums. It's, it's so, so messy. messy, but it is like amazingly yeah. messy, <laughs> though. Like we benefited. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know you felt like that. You want to put that in a song because that could sound really good. All right, right, right. Yeah. And I keep thinking to myself, you wrote a whole song about somebody yeah. else while married to someone, yeah. but you know. But yeah, I mean. Wow. So how long were you in crisis? From, from, <laughs> I'm mean, still from now. the band. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, was in, I was in crisis from 98 until the band broke up in 2005. So seven years. So I guess here's my question. You're, you've been in a, <laughs> you were in a band. You guys were touring. You were doing your thing. What, what happens when your band breaks up and you're no longer in the it's band? It's really bad. You get really time. depressed. <laughs> you become very sad <laughs> because you, you go... Because like, literally, <laughs> we broke up the day after we got back from the biggest tour we ever did. Oh, wow. What a right. high and what a low. We, we toured with this band, Exodus, which Exodus is the band that Kirk Hammett from Metallica was originally in. Right? They're a Bay Area right. thrash band. Right. Gary Holt, who plays in Exodus, who played in Exodus, is in Slayer now, which is like one of the most right. popular metal bands of all, you know what I mean? Right. So we were like really, you know, starting to, to, to break some ground. And then like the day after we got off tour, it was like, uh, yeah, this is probably not ever happening again. And it's like, what? <laughs> 
So wait, I got to go back to work at my regular right. ass job <laughs> and repeat that ad nauseum for, for like forever? What the? F- you know what I mean? So what do you do? What do you do? So what do you decide to I do? went back. I went to my job. I was like, I don't want to be in a band <laughs> ever again because this hurts too much. What, what I was working was in the it? casino Wait, gaming industry. I was working where they just had the Super Bowl huh. with Snoop and Dr. Dre. They had that where it used to be the Hollywood Park racetrack. And I used to work in Hollywood Park Casino and Crystal Park Casino in Compton. And yeah, it was. And I just went back to work and I was like, I don't want to be in bands anymore. I started making sad electronic music, down tempo, trip hop. And just uh, because I could still because I could control that. I can't I couldn't control what other people were going to do, but I could control this sequencing software and these samples. I was sampling like we were talking about before and making making this music and uh, and trying to figure out and just regrouping, you know, and it took me a couple of years. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. So you're you you've gone back to the regular job and how long did you stay there kind of what was next for you did you you know make a switch like at what point did you go from 
where you were to getting to abroad for the first time. So I'll try to make it quick is that while I was doing that job, I was like, I cannot do this ad nauseum for the rest of my life. They're paying me a pretty okay amount of money. So it makes me scared to quit. Yeah. But like, I, yeah. I can't, I can't do this. I started practicing Buddhism also and just realizing, you know, in, in Buddhism, we say never build your happiness on the misfortune of others. And I realized that that's exactly what the casino gaming industry is. It's an industry that builds itself on the misfortune of others. So I was like, I got to get out of here. So eventually I started taking classes in a community college, like slowly, like taking a class at a time. And then I ended up losing my job, which panicked me tremendously for like an hour. And then I went home and chanted. I, I chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo in the mornings and evenings. I chanted right before this interview. And then after I chanted, it was like, oh, wait, no. This is exactly what's supposed to happen. Like, I have to leave this job. So I'm going to register for school full time and I'm going to figure it out. And I ended up getting offered a job like within that month where I could make residual income. Where it's just like kind of doing stuff from the internet like moving yeah. some products around, legal stuff, you know, but, um, and doing that, <laughs> he had to, I had to clarify. Sorry, he had to yeah, clarify. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, He's moving product, huh? <laughs> I heard you talking about Columbia you're like, earlier. You're moving weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty much, I said moving weight to someone and they looked at me and I went, wait. Yeah. <laughs> Not, I, the way I, I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot the connotation. I didn't know there. that had any <laughs> other connotation at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, oh. yeah. So, so I went back to school and then, and you know, at this time I'm in my thirties. So I'm like making it count. It's not like when I was in my twenties, I didn't know, like I, I've seen what it's like out there. You know what I'm saying? So, so yeah. I really, I really pushed myself and then I ended up uh, getting into a four year school and as, and I ended up pursuing global studies. I was really, uh, inspired by, by my mentor, Daisaku Ikeda, to really try to understand the world and its interconnectedness and how to make it a better place. And so I pursued global studies as my major. And then within that, I won a scholarship to study history, Vietnamese history in Vietnam. So I came to Vietnam in 2015 to study Vietnamese history. And, uh, and I did, and I fell in love with Vietnam. I was like, I gotta come back here. You know, I, I like, I didn't want to even leave. So I went back for my last year of university. And as, as it turned out, the application for the Fulbright scholarship was due like three weeks after I got back into, back to the States. So I applied like immediately got all my letters of rec. And by the next, by next February, by the next February, I find out, found out that I'd be coming back to Vietnam on a Fulbright scholarship uh, for, for a year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Wow. How, so I guess I'm trying to figure out, and I, I think it's really interesting with your educational trajectory because too often we think 18 to 25 year olds seem to have hmm. it figured out, Right. And they haven't had a lot of life experience. And sometimes they just don't know. And I say this as someone who works in higher ed. So I see this daily. But 
I'm trying to, and, and it's crazy to see how the pieces are connected, but what made you in that initial moment even choose to go to Vietnam? Was it just an opportunity to get out of the country or was it just, this seems like a very cool initiative? Like what was even drawing you there? Was there a religious aspect of it? Like why Vietnam as opposed to anywhere else? So you know how they talk about that the United States is politically very polarized, right? Like, especially right yes. now, I mean, you got people who love Trump and, yeah. you yeah. know, whatever, right? Yeah. So in studying history, I started to kind of trace back the chain of cause causality in modern history. And it seemed to me that a lot of this polarization started in the 60s. Right. And it was the and the two major issues then were the civil rights era, the civil rights struggle and the Vietnam War. Right. Like you had people that were cold. Right. It was so it was like people that were for the war, like, you know, it's just like kind of amazing that they could get they got people on board with this shit. And, and, And those are the same people that elected Trump. Those are the same people that were against civil rights. You know what I'm saying? And then you had people that were against the war and they were pro-civil rights. So I started to see that this chain of causality, like I saw, I mean, obviously there've been a lot of problems in the United States for a long time, but in modern history, that was a huge shift. But then I started thinking, well, it's kind of unfair to view the Vietnam War as just something that happened to the people of the United States. It wasn't even fought here, you know? So I, I got curious as to the way it affected these people in Vietnam and the people that, by the way, won the war was like the only people to have won a war again, like, and this, and this country is like a third world country. So I became very curious. So then when I heard about this opportunity to study history in Vietnam, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And actually the, the, uh, I won the Gilman scholarship that initially it was supposed to pay for half of the, of the program. But once they heard my story, they paid for the whole thing, which was like unheard of. Like nobody on my campus had yeah. ever won that much from a Gilman scholarship. Nobody had won a Fulbright either. So it was a bunch of firsts. So yeah, I was, so, so when I got the opportunity to come, like I, I knew that it was such a tremendous benefit, you know? So I really dug in. And I, I, I definitely am going to put this in the show notes because having worked in higher ed, study abroad, all of that stuff, Gilman and Fulbright, those are major things to win. And especially when I think about first gen, underrepresented, all of those groups, like those are such great scholarships. And so, yeah, no, that's amazing that you got that funding because for any of us, I think if we, especially if you're thinking about going abroad and the financial component to have a reason to also have it tied to your purpose and what you're studying and to have things covered. That's such a clear mm-hmm. pathway. And so what was your impression? I assume that Vietnam, when you got there, at least for the first time, you'd never been to Asia or had you been to Asia I had before? gone to Japan. Uh, Crisis did a show, uh, played a festival in, in Tokyo in 2005. Okay. But that's Tokyo. You know what I mean? And we were there yeah. for like three days. I mean, it was, yeah. it was amazing. And I yeah. was like yeah. blown away. Yeah, but definitely didn't spend enough time. So I had been to Asia. So when I came to to Vietnam, like my own only frame of reference was was Japan. So I was like, you know, and Tokyo's nice, but it's not like people are warm there. You know what I'm saying? It's not like it's very yeah. it's a very contained place. And I just yeah. thought that that was just like yeah. like an Asian thing, you know. 
And then when I came to Vietnam and yeah. it was like tropical and people are loud and people are posted up on little plastic chairs, drinking beers and, and eating a lot of food that reminded me of, of Puerto Rican food. And, and I was like, and, and lively, yeah. I was like, oh, wow, this is like, I really vibe with this, you know? It's the humidity also. I felt very at home, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you've made some really interesting points because I think what's, especially if you look at Vietnam and you're coming from an American perspective, the struggle is there's an image, which is through the lens mm-hmm. of war, right? But there's not an understanding of, there's a modern Vietnam, right? And their story, there's a story before the war and there was a story after the war and there's a story that continues. And I wonder this, and you seem to have always run in, in diverse circles, but even when you were saying that you were going to Vietnam, did you find people, at least in the States, were like, well, why are you going? Or there's nothing there. Like, did you get any pushback or was it just more that people were like, oh, that's no, cool. No, no, I got some people. I mean, no shade, but I mean, some people, I mean, people think of Vietnam as a war. So first of all, so I had these, these neighbors, um, my neighbors, when I lived in Riverside, which is where I went to university, just like some homies, like, you know, Mexican cats, you know, and we would just, you know, (laughs) talk about football and beer and, and I don't, I don't follow football, but I drink beer. So we kick it, you know, and they were cool guys, not educated (laughs) dudes, you know, but, uh, and I remember I told them, I was like, yo, I'm, I'm going to, to Vietnam. And they're like, so homie, you getting deployed? You know, I was like, deployed? Like, wait. The war ended like, like 20. 50 years ago. <laughs> like 40 years at this time. Well, that, well now like yeah, 40. Yeah. Right. I was just like, you know, okay. And then I'll never forget the nurse, the study abroad nurse is like the nurse has to make sure you get all the shots. Yeah. She was like, I yeah. don't, you know, it's fine that you're going to Vietnam, but. I don't know why all these people or kids are trying to go abroad when you live in America. We got so many great things in America. Have you been to Colorado? I was like, woman, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't get, um, I mean. Full disclosure. I, I have too. been to Colorado it's and it's beautiful. It's, it's, However- it's beautiful, but it's different from going to another culture. Colorado is the most beautiful At place in the United States. Colorado world. though. Because she really could have said some other states yeah. and I'd have been like, and that's why we're leaving because Indiana. <laughs> have you been to Salt Lake City? Dakotas. Have you been to Toledo, Ohio? <laughs> well, no, I've heard, no, I, no, I've heard Utah's beautiful though, but like Arkansas, we, 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 we pushed in a lot. <laughs> I've been to 48 out of 50 Any states. Of I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I, I want to knock Hawaii and Alaska, you know, I'll take it off the bucket list, but I'm good. So good. Have you been to Colorado? Be- yes, Colorado it was the most beautiful place I had ever seen before I came to Vietnam. It was like just the mountains and, you know, but it's also like, it's not, it's just about like, yeah, I, I, like I want to get out of here. I want to see how other people are living. <laughs> right. And no offense to you, lady. Right. But this is one of the reasons I want to leave. You know what I'm saying? It's just a small. And yeah. also, it's study abroad. So you're going to see all the kids that want to get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's another story. Let's right. not put no, that yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. No, no, we can talk about that. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack here. Like, <laughs> that can yeah. be the outtakes if you want to hear what my thoughts on people not knowing their job mm. accurately. <laughs> but that's another thing. 
So how long have you been in Vietnam at currently? Like, um, I've been here for almost, it's going to be in May. It'll be six years. No, 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 no. Sorry. Sorry. Okay, June, so always a question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cause that was 30 days. It's very important. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is going to be on the test, right? <laughs> right. It's like, what is that? But here's, here's always, you know, a thing that I, I think people always wonder. So you, you went out, you got the Fulbright. Long story short, you're still in Vietnam. From a career standpoint, how did you end up staying there? Like what opportunities were open to you? Or were you the kind of person where, you know, we've got people who are content creators who they, you know, they're entrepreneurs. We have people who are educators. Like what, what was it that you found that you were able to do to kind of sustain yourself living? In well, Vietnam? after the Fulbright, I was teaching English and I found that was a way to sustain myself and give myself enough free time so that I could discover Vietnam. I could do some traveling in Southeast Asia, kind of find my footing. Yeah. Yeah. Get comfortable. Cause that's the thing about when you live in a place like this is that you can, you know, with 20 hours a week working, you can sustain a living. You can even save some money. You know, while yeah. you have all this free time to do this other stuff. So within that, that's when I started kind of pursuing this thing that I had been interested in that I had tried a couple of times, which is stand-up comedy. And so I mm -hmm. began, although I had performed a couple of times while I still lived in the States, I began performing regularly, like right after the Fulbright scholarship. And so I was I was in a remote area called Meetaw in the in the Mekong Delta which is about two hours away from Saigon. And I would come to Saigon like on the weekends, you know, to check it out, to kind of check out what the scene was like. And then after the Fulbright, I moved to Saigon permanently. And then I quickly fell into the stand-up comedy scene and started performing regularly. Yeah, and then since then, I got a better teaching job, started running my own shows, it, the thing about places like this, Vietnam has only been open to the outside world since like the 90s. Yeah. Right. Which is very different from places yeah. like Thailand, which is like never closed. You know what I mean? Or, right. you know, or North Korea, which is never open. You know, it was closed for a little while, right. <laughs> you know, um, but then then they opened it up. And so it's still like uh, certain things are kind of like fresh and new here. And meanwhile, if you're if you're a foreigner, and I always kind of want to highlight this because I want expats to realize their privilege, right? Especially expats with yeah. passports like mine, which is that you only have to be marginally good at something to make it happen in a place as fertile yeah. as Saigon. Marginally good. You know what I mean? And so a lot of people think, you know, that's that's what privilege does. It makes you think like, oh, I just earned this because I'm great. It's like, no, it's like a lot of happenstance involved in you being able to do what you do. So just realizing that and being for real about that, that's that that that's I won't say enough, but that's a yeah. good start, you know. So, you know, because yeah. of all these things, you know, I've been able to kind of secure a life for myself here. I'm not sure if I'm answering the question. Yeah. No, you totally did. And I think that you mentioned something that I like to mention a lot of times on this podcast is sort of the self-awareness, depending on where your passport's coming from in the world, right? 
So there are doors that are affordable and are open to many of us because quite frankly, we come from places where because of our education structure, because of our language ability, because of our financial situation, because of all three, because there is a positive bias towards maybe in this case, maybe a Westerner that we get doors open that other people don't. And so I think you're right, like to acknowledge that and also realize you could still be mediocre. <laughs> you're just not, you're not, yes. you're just not mediocre. Yes. Like your competition is like back where in the States or Canada or the right. UK, right? Like that's yes. just all it is. I mean, you might be mm. mediocre. And here's the thing though, like, as long as you understand you're mediocre, I never have a problem with it. It's when you think you're more the mediocre and like, well, I'm just the most amazing here. I'm like, those people don't have a four year education. I don't know how you can, <laughs> how you can compare like what you kind of know, because quite honestly, they don't know what you don't know, right. but I know what you don't know. And therefore you, got you it. are mediocre. You got it. Anyway. That's so fun. Like this is, this is why, and this I think is why we're going to be friends. Right. I have, you know, uh, Nas <laughs> said, uh, on, on Illmatic, he said, sleep is the cousin of death. I always say, I always say, yeah. uh, mediocrity is the cousin of privilege. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. So here's a question. And I, and I asked this to Tequila Rose when she was on. As a comedian, first of all, who's your material catering to? Like, who, what's your audience makeup? Is it Vietnamese? Is it expats? Is it a mix? Who's coming to your shows, your events, your There's, programs? It's a mix, but it's mostly expats. I would really like a lot more local Vietnamese folks that are that are tuned into the things that I talk about, um, because I think there's a lot that that they would enjoy of it. Because I've gotten some really good reactions. The best reactions, like like when I get when I have a, a local Vietnamese person, if they like one of my jokes, that's like the best feeling. You know, I have some jokes mm-hmm. specifically about Vietnam and I had one one Vietnamese dude be like, no, you you really get the culture here. And that just feels amazing. Mm. You know, but that said, stand up comedy has it's not traditionally a thing here. There are some some new stand up mm-hmm. comics that are starting to emerge. And there was one guy uh, a bunch of years ago that was really popular that. uh he started getting a little bit political and that didn't fly too well with the authorities here, but it's, it's a relatively new thing. So um, yeah, the audience is, is mostly expats catering to is strong. Cause uh, I have, yeah. you know, yeah. I think when I started, it was more like, I have something to say, like I have an agenda. Like it, it was very, I was very almost maybe too cognizant. And aware that I'm using comedy as a vehicle to talk about political and social issues and also to air my grievances, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and hopefully in a mm-hmm. funny way. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I'm, I'm concentrating a little bit more on just being funny and all that stuff is going to come out naturally because that's who I am. But I had an agenda to the point where it was like, you know, if people's feelings got hurt, I was like, that's okay. You know, not everybody deserves to laugh. That was my, that was my, my credo. <laughs> you know, some people were really upset by those things. You said, good. Like they didn't, they was like, no, they don't, then they don't deserve to laugh. You know, they, they need to be upset. Whereas like now I'm kind of like, I, I want to find a way 
you know, when I find a way to talk about something that that is really close to my heart and and important and and reach somebody that doesn't necessarily wouldn't have agreed with me before they heard the joke or maybe doesn't agree but agree with me but they get it like that feels really good so i'm still like growing and learning a lot and i even with expat audiences obviously you come kind of out of an american right. vein do you find that i mean and and you did a really great job kind of explaining it even looking at it from a vietnamese perspective but do you ever have moments where even the jokes you're telling may not even be completely received by other expats or, you know, non-Americans or even Americans? Like, I'm just very interested in terms of, I, I, I said this to Keela as well. I'm completely fascinated at the moments that you bomb <laughs> as a comedian. Like, what do you, what often are the reasons you think you bomb? And I, and I think this especially because it looks like you've got an international audience. Like, have you ever had moments where things didn't connect and maybe you could kind of pinpoint yeah. why? So. Right after the thing happened on January 6th last year. <laughs> right. right? The, the riots, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I, ha I, had a, I had a visceral reaction to that whole thing. And then it came out at an open mic, which thankfully I recorded. Thankfully it's recorded. But it was like, <laughs> okay. it was like I purged. You know what I'm saying? And, and the basis of it was like, you know, other American expats being like, oh my God, it's so horrible. Did you see what happened? And me being like, good. I'm glad. <laughs> oh, no. You know, finally, because I've been war I've been telling you about this shit for seven years, you know, and now you want me to be upset that uh they were beating cops with American flags. I'm like, Pfft. you know, so that that was like, that's the premise of the joke. Um, there's, there's a, there's a Jeffrey Dahmer <laughs> anyway. So I had a vis, I had a visceral reaction and it came out and, and it did really well. You just, hold on, hold on, hold on. You just dropped Jeffrey. So I kind of gave it away. So it's <laughs> like, like, it's like oh, I just fucked up the joke. I should have just told you the joke, but basically, no, don't but even. basically it's like, it's like, you know, when you don't like somebody, but other people like them and it drives you crazy. Where you'd be like, you like, I don't like yeah. that dude, man. It, that dude I work with, man. He's just, you'd be like, nah, he's cool, man. I'm just talking about, and you're like, nah, there's something about him. Like, he's just like, I think he's, you know, he's dangerous. Man, he's cool as fuck, man. You know what you're talking about? And you'd be like, all right. And then next day, you turn on the news, be like, Milwaukee <laughs> resident Jeffrey Dahmer accused of killing. And you'd be like, <laughs> yes, I fucking told you. I wish he ate more people because I like to be right. Mm. So that was, you know. <laughs> was like, yeah, so oh, that's God. where it went. That's, so I did wow. that. It did really well the night of, you know, because I literally, it was about four days after it happened that that I did that bit. And then I did that bit at, at, at another place where it was like really more mixed, like a lot of French folks, you know, and, and uh, it's a mix of expats. And some people, and you know, and it's true. Americans think the entire fucking world revolves around us. You know what I mean? Not everybody gives a shit. And also some people are just tired of hearing about it. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm, I'm sure like expats that are not American are probably close to as glad that <laughs> Trump didn't get elected. So they don't have to hear about his ass anymore. You know what I yeah. mean? So, a lot, so I felt a lot of people pull yeah. back on that one. And so that'll happen. I do a lot of stuff about race. 
I do a lot of stuff about race that asks people <laughs> to be like self-aware and self-critical. That's not possible for a lot of people. So they get upset, you know, what am I going to do? You know, it's like, if, if I am going to have fun, I'm going to enjoy myself. I know I'm going to say what I got to say. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it's like, all right, you know, it's, so it's, but so, so it is, I like, and I said this, I realized this recently, like the stuff that I do is a calculated risk. Cause it's going to be mostly white folks. You know what I'm saying? So when I'm doing like my racial stuff, it is, it is a calculated risk that I take, but it's like, if I, if I don't get to do that stuff, then I'm not going to, this is the reason I do it is get to talk about the shit that I want to talk about that. If I talking about it in another way, in a non funny way, apparently if I talk about it in a serious way, then I'm a problem or, uh, you know what I mean? I'm a drag, you know? So I've, yeah. I've written these things that look like jokes so I could talk about them, you know, and, and, and people can hear, <laughs> listen to it for some reason. I mean, I think you apparently subscribe to my school of thought, which is if I'm amused, that's all that matters. And so, and so I, I personally, I understand, I, mean, I understand not, that, but I'm going to tell you one thing though. I'll tell you one thing. It's, it's hard to be amused when you're supposed to be making people laugh and you're not, it might, you might, you might get by a couple of right. times, but you know, bombing is not fun. Even if you feel like righteously, I, you know <laughs> what? I'm right on this. It's just not. On this, and it's, them it's not. One the, it's one of the, I mean, I don't know. I don't say it was one of the worst things. I used to be afraid of it like it was one of the worst things. Now I'm just kind of like, if it happens, I'm just like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, it's, it's an occupational hazard. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know what, though? I mean, cool point, though. Thinking about especially if your comedy has a bit of a, a political bent to it. First of all, the fact that when you've got people from so many different places, there's, you run the, I think you do run the risk of, okay, this is very American centric. Although because America is in the media, not just in our own media, but like BBC, TV sank, like all of them, like DW, like it's so centric that it's like, yeah, we can talk about us all the time. Cause let's be honest, we provide much material, right? Like we have enough material that you could probably talk just about the States in whatever form and have material. But like, you know, I, I, I do think about, especially when you talk about racial issues, right? Because as we were talking about off air, like every country has their own, like how they approach race. And it's not necessarily, and I, I always say, especially when you're talking about black perspectives, it depends on where your black perspective mm, started, mm -hmm. right? Like, so a black person from mm. the Bay Area has a very unique perspective than a black person from hmm. Ghana, right? <laughs> from Accra, right? Than a black person from Jamaica, or even a black person from Atlanta. <laughs> black people from Atlanta and black people from the Bay Area mm -hmm. are not the same mm -hmm. black people. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're right. just black. Yeah. They black in America. And they got some shared mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. black in America experiences, but like, living in Georgia and living in California right. and being black. Either. And so I, I'm all right. And then, so I, I thinking about your comedy in the back of my mind, I was thinking to myself, probably a lot of your expat audience mm. is not black. And so how do you, not nearly <laughs> enough. So how do you approach? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so how do you, how do you approach not only talking about race from, an American perspective and what you've seen and, and grown up with, but also with groups of folks who may not have even necessarily experienced or have the same cultural reference. 
if that makes sense. Like, how do you navigate that in terms? Or are you just like, look, I'm just going to tell this joke and who gets it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's going to work. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what's going to work before I do it. Sometimes I do something that I think is so good and like, man, and I'll do it three times. And, it, and it's just like, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll keep doing it. I have jokes that, that people that <laughs> never got a good reaction, but I like them so much. I'm just like, you know, I'm like a gorilla trying to put a square peg in a round hole, just like, just jamming it, you know? But yeah, yeah there's a lot of, there's a lot of trial and error. I try to draw parallels. Like this is what this looks like for, to me. Like, for example, yeah. Southeast Asia is the last bastion of hope for white people with dreadlocks. This isn't even one of my bits, right? <laughs> I've never said Wait. this on stage. <laughs> but Sorry. Southeast Wait, Asia what? is the last bastion of hope <laughs> for white people that want to get away with wearing dreadlocks and not have anybody say boo. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Wait, is there, is there a reason I don't, for this? Like, I, it, it's just I'm like, sorry. it's like the backpacking. It's like, <laughs> I, it's like the crusty oh, yeah. thing. Oh right? God, I hate crusty. I can't and then, crusty. And then there's like, and then there's like <laughs> reggae. There's like a lot of white people who are like super into reggae music. So I ended up going to this, this, this yes. music festival. I don't know if you saw the, if you, I, I did a podcast about this recently. This is one of my jokes. And it's basically, I won't go into the whole joke, but it was a music festival where it's all reggae, drum and bass, hip hop, right? All this, right? And there was not one black artist on there. But there's a lot of white folks, you know, doing like big Jamaican voices. And the thing is, there's nobody, there's not enough black people around. At one point, I was hanging out with Angie, who you should also interview, uh, Angie the Diva, and our friend Britt, two black folks. And we're sitting there, and we're just like, okay. And then, and then there's a dude on stage rapping All Right by Kendrick Lamar. Okay? You get me. You get me. Now, for here's the thing. I know at this point I've lost a segment of the audience. Now, here's the deal. Some of you may have been introduced to Kendrick Lamar through the Super Bowl performance. <laughs> the rest of you know who Kendrick Lamar is. And if and is that from To Pimp yes. a Butterfly? Is it yes. from that album or was it from Humble? That's from, yeah. And it's basically, oh my God. The, what I, it's basically like the he Black was, Lives Matter anthem. Because... Know? No, but also the he had to change the lines. Oh no, like, no, no, no! He didn't. He left the end word out. Like, but the whole thing about it is like, he just, <laughs> yeah. no, you can't just move past that. You can't. He, he left it he out, left or it he out. used he it. it but that's a that's a lot, a lot of leaving it out because it out. that chorus is like, a lot of it out. and he didn't say anything. He didn't even change it to like wow. neighbor or something like that. He just he was it, it was weird. But the other thing about it is like. This song is about like how difficult it is to be black in America. But despite all of that, we going to be all right. We going to be all right. And he's singing it to like it's like 98% white people. We going to be I'm like, "Who the fuck are you talking to?" But it's not even a it's not even it's a not, reggae no, song. This is, this this is, is my one other of, this, this is the like, this is the, <laughs> the hip hop stage. Once again, this is the hip hop stage. This is the hip hop. <laughs> not not a black artist in sight. Not one. 
but they could get away with it. They could get away <laughs> with I, it because there's nobody, you know what I mean? But if I say something, no, because the three of us were just looking at each other like, <laughs> like word, you know what I mean? Who want to? Who want to shut, shut it down? Who want to shut it down? But then, then I'm that. Then I'm a prop. Then the my whole I, I can't have fun for the rest of the. You know what I'm saying? Is like <laughs> you know. And I don't. I don't. I'm not gonna police people like that. <laughs> but I'm gonna talk about you on stage. But I'm gonna make some jokes about you. <laughs> can I? Can I? <laughs> when you said the last yeah. bastion of yeah. dreadlock white people. Let me tell you about another band. I hate it because this takes me back to the late 90s. You know what I immediately had a vision Sublime. of? Do you remember? No, I actually, I like Sublime. You know, I actually like Sublime. Yeah. They got good songs. I was going to yeah, say, I actually like Sublime. No. Um, do you remember oh Rusted my God. Root? I saw them. <laughs> I saw them in concert. I was at a festival and they happened to be playing like in 91 or something like that. They were they were crusty. But do you know what? Like, I was like, that's yeah. why I'm like you got a green that. room. Why didn't you take a shower? What do you got a backstage area? Why are you so funky? When you said that, I said, "Oh God, that's like the rested yeah. root people. Yeah. Like they're just yeah. traveling yeah. the world." Exactly. You got uh, it. I'm kind of sad I wasn't. I'm kind of sad I wasn't at this because I just said, "Yeah." Because I, I wish you were there. Why too. not? Since we're all here and we're all friends. No, I'm, 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 <laughs> Since we're all no, friends, I'm very. Just... I'm very I, what I realized <laughs> about myself, like I'm, I, I am. One of my faults is that I can be very, like, spiteful in the sense that I will let somebody do something to me that I don't like. You know what I'm saying? I will like. I will let them go through with it, just so I could be like this. You know, so I can have that on them. And also, I know I'm going to turn it into material. I know I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm oh going to, I'm going to make a joke. I create can't. something. I'm sorry, I can't with this event. This is like this is Unreal. like the event. <laughs> oh my god, I can see it too. And I ain't never been to Southeast State. Closest I got was Singapore. No, Singapore ain't that. <laughs> and the thing is, and the thing is, nobody's going to check them. Just, nope. And that's why they can do it. Cause nope, there's nobody to be like, what, what are you doing? You know what I'm saying? And I've had, I've had, I had one of them, like, just go in and explain to me, like, he's, he's not Rastafarian, <laughs> but he like, you know, it's the call it like all this stuff. I'm like, okay, okay. Still telling my joke. And I've had, and I've had people walk out. I've had people walk out on this joke. I've had people walk out on this joke and complain to the management. You know, they didn't, they didn't like what I had to say. I'm like, you didn't like what I had to say about like an actual thing that happened. You didn't, oh, you didn't like me talking about my lived experience? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why were they, were, were they they're, they're, the rusted root people and offended? Yeah, I, think or they they just... I think they were of that ilk. I think they were of that <laughs> ilk. Yeah. I mean, we see you coming though. Like, every, <laughs> like I. Yeah. No. I've known a couple. But that, that's I've why they couple, can't like, so. it's like, the funny thing about it is if they were doing the same music, and let's say like a hundred actual black people walked in there, they would feel funny. You know what I'm saying? They would be like, mm. uh, you know, I always talk about that scene from you've seen a uh, office space. The scene when the dude is rapping yes. to Scarface. Yes. yes. And the black dude comes <laughs> and, and he like rolls up his windows. Like, oh, fuck. There's a real one now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, this goes back to what you were saying about mediocrity. 
<laughs> mediocrity. Yeah. You can get away with that. <laughs> it's, you can get away with it when people don't know, but I, that is just, I'm stuck on the song choice because that's the wildest song. To, like, you could, at this point, bro, you could have said, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud because I, it, it's just a, re, it's a, there's so many other songs. I mean, here's the thing. You can yeah. take it back to 93. You could have done a snow song and could have done Informer and nobody, would, they were closed then anyway. So you could have done Informer. Yeah. And ain't nobody, right. ain't nobody got to know. And you could have been like, yeah. that's me oh, in the yeah. video. And they'd have been like, that is you in the video. And hey, I like snow in 92. So I'm not running, but you could have done. They could have changed it I don't know. Imposter. There were some folks you could have been off. They could have changed Informer and changed the lyrics right. a little bit. Uh, and nobody, nobody, the, yeah. they're probably too young, but they didn't know. You, you, you had some benchmarks or some, yeah, some go-tos nope. that you didn't all the go way. to. They went all the way to the, <laughs> they went yep. all the way to, Ken- they went to Kendrick. Oh my God. And so, wow. I don't, I don't so that's, so that's, that. that's one of the reasons I do comedy <laughs> stuff like that. Cause if I did, if I didn't do comedy, wow. I would just be angry. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, when you get so mad about something and yeah. like, maybe you, you don't speak up for yourself and now it's two weeks later and you're washing the dishes, having a conversation yeah. with somebody that's not actually there. Obviously, <laughs> you're winning the argument because it's happening you in your the... mind, right? <laughs> right. And the you have the comeback. best comeback, right? Course, that you didn't say course. two weeks prior. It's always like, yeah. oh, wait, I should have said it. I can't live like that. I'm going to say it on stage. You've just listened to an episode of The Global Chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficcio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Global Chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at Global Chat Pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com.